Tourist Perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey. Well, from the war with Georgia over South Ossetia and Abkhazia back in 2008 to the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the more recent suppression of dissent in Belarus and Kazakhstan, the question remains whether President Vladimir Putin has been playing an extremely long game since taking power back in the year 2000? Or has his decision to invade Ukraine been a more recent development, serving as yet another box to be ticked on Russia's resurgence as a superpower? Indeed, questions over Putin's mental and physical state of health, surrounded by yes-men during the COVID pandemic, have also come to the fore. The pandemic, indeed, gave plenty of people spare time to think out their own personal ambitions, goals, dreams. Could the same be said about the man in Moscow? Now, to discuss the gambit being rolled out by Russia's decision to invade a neutral, sovereign European democracy, I'm joined in studio today by international security consultant with the Brussels-based Institute for Economics and Peace, Serge Struban. Serge, you're very welcome to the programme today. It's a pleasure to be here again. Well, let's look uh, from a French perspective, just for starters, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron was the vanguard of diplomacy uh, with Putin ahead of the February 24th invasion. And he has continued, or at least says he has continued, to uh, keep channels of communication open with his Russian counterpart. Uh, but was there ever really a chance that Macron could have succeeded in mediating with Russia and prevented the invasion? Or was it a foregone conclusion that Putin was going to go ahead with the plans in any case? Did it underscore, basically, the impotence of the West to have any influence on Putin himself? Well, when we look at the influence of the West towards Putin, we need to look at the past two or three decades and what we allowed, basically, the Russian regime under Putin, but also other regimes to, um, to do in, in, in the world, in international relations. I think we have, have been witnessing in the past, especially in the past four or five years, we have been witnessing a shift from a liberal approach to international relations where peace is at the heart, in economic interconnection is, is at the heart of this, and the individual is at the heart, towards a more competitive world based on a more realist and even more offensive realist mm -hmm. approach to international relations where society as a whole is, is central, where security is central, so therefore borders, population, territory is, is uh, central, and a system in which you can use military power to influence others. That's an evolution of the past two, three, two, three decades. I think the, the decision to um, really to invade Ukraine is something that was always there as an idea, started to crystallize maybe early September with you know a new uh, strategic defense pact between the United States and Ukraine, of course, a permanent support by the EU, NATO, and other members in, I would say, the self-determination of the Ukrainian people and their political leadership to uh, choose for either NATO, EU, or another partnership. Well, when you look at this, these are all elements that can maybe lead to an acceleration of the decisions to invade or to, to wage a war. And more recently, in much more recent history, uh, I would put it to you that uh, we remember that the United States had drawn a line in the sand or a red line um, regarding the use of chemical weapons, for example, in Syria, yet nothing was done by the Obama administration back then. Is the West now paying the price for its apathy in not continuing with what it said it would do? 
Well, I think it's, um, I don't know if it's paying a price for this, but it's definitely when you look at the narratives that have been used by both President Putin and also his foreign uh, ministry, Lavrov, about the reason why this war was waged or the special military operation was started. We heard, you know, elements like responsibility to protect, like the presence, potential presence of nuclear weapons or even uh, bacteriological or, or, or chemical weapons. We also used, the, we, you uh, heard the, the, the word terrorist, countering terrorism or fascist or, you know, a Nazi regime. Sure. Well, a lot of those arguments have have also been used in the past 20, 30 years to start operations in Iraq, in Libya and other places. So I guess we're basically getting back the arguments that the West have used to really get to UN Security Council resolution to be able to intervene in some of the countries I mentioned before. And it's basically taking away the arguments, the political arguments to refute what uh, Russia is saying today. Indeed, we can remember the rhetoric of the Bush administration about taking out the outposts of tyranny back in the time, which was really expanding the war even beyond uh, Iraq or the Middle East. Um, but now, on a more practical level, um, what we've been hearing or what I have been seeing uh, on some uh, French news channels who are well respected is that Putin is going to run out of money. Um, when the war kicked off uh, at the end of February, um, a lot of pundits were saying, well, look, he's only got six, six weeks, not six months, six weeks worth of liquid cash to be able to fund the boots on the ground. We all remember the 150,000 uh, build-up of troops along Ukraine, the other 30,000 that were moving into Belarus. That costs money. We have the supply trains that were then heading towards the main centers into Ukraine. Is Putin going to run out of money? Well, this has been prepared also financially. So there was a pot of about 650 billion ready for him. The sanctions that have been imposed, and a lot of this, I would say about 80% or even more, is now frozen somewhere, so he cannot access that anymore. Mm -hmm. I think um, really at the first days of the conflicts, after the sanctions have been applied, there's about 30 billion left there for him really in cash to use, and also a small portion in Hanminbi that which would need to be to be basically uh, you know changed into rubles also in, or in other, in other which in is other going currency, down the, which is going down also yeah. in other currencies. So he has a small a small amount of money of course thirty billion is a lot of money, but still militarily is a small, a small amount, amount of yeah. money left to basically you know invest in this war mm -hmm. uh, and and in other actions that are also going on inside inside Russia. What I think we need to look at here is also the effectiveness of the sanctions. Post, post on him from a positive perspective but also from a negative perspective. Mm. Um, I would say what really struck me in the past weeks if this self-sanctioning of the private sector basically disengaging most completely from, from Russia. This has been really hurtful for, for the economy over there also. Mm. We also need to look at the, the sanctions on oil and gas, but most, what, mostly we need to look at the dependency on Russian oil and gas and coal in Europe. Um, this is still flowing. There is still an exchange there, and this exchange is something close to about average 700 million a day. Uh, so that's also a figure we need to take into account. And indeed, that's a whole other day's conversation to look about energy independence and sovereignty, indeed, uh, over the over the coming uh, weeks and months. Um, but let's look back militarily now. I mean, indeed, uh, Putin himself uh, was basically marketed his uh, special uh, military operation um, as a liberation blitz um, that was going to liberate uh, the Ukrainians from a neo-Nazi drug-addled regime. Um, 
but that has failed. Uh, and, and the war, it would seem, um, it's more reliant now on artillery and on aerial bombardment. But it will, if, if the R Russians are not getting this finished quickly, they're being drawn further and further into urban centers, which will be fought street by street, as we've, sent, we've seen before, in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia in Mogadishu as well. Uh, this is going to be the hardest cost really for Russians, especially when it comes to winning and keeping the public in Russia who have been fed misinformation on board with the war. I think when the first phase of the war, the Russians came in with what we would call like low level or light level warfare, mm -hmm. really thinking that they were liberating, that would just come in being welcomed and they could just like, walk from one, one city to the other. This has clearly not taken place. Um, after the second phase, they really entered into, I would say, something that was more heavy, that we could call network centric, uh, network -centric warfare, excuse mm -hmm. me, where these uh, the battle groups uh, in quite about more than uh, more than 100 battle groups would come in, in in a quite, I would say, independent manner and do whatever was needed to do to achieve their goals and the tasks that they would receive. This has also clearly failed. And if we can, if we may believe the information coming from uh, from the battlefield, about 100% of the troops are now engaged in Ukraine. Uh, they have an attrition rate that would be around 25 to 30%. Well, from a military perspective, you're not able to maneuver anymore because you don't have any reserve elements that you can use to really start maneuvering. And if your attrition rate is 30%, you're not able to maneuver. Mm. Uh, and I think that's why we see a stagnation of the, the front line. That's why we see the, the invasion stalling. What would be the next step is to regroup whatever is still mobile, regroup what, whatever is still available at a normal attrition rate and go for, for Kiev or go for really a symbolic takeover of one of the cities. Briefly, what is a normal percentage attrition rate in the eyes of a general that is actually conducting a war? What is, it, what is the acceptable percentage? Oh, well, this, this comes in norms and, and it, it's all related to the, uh, your potential to still influence on the battlefield. Of course, when you come in, your attrition rate is zero. And as, as, as long as the, I would say combat is evolving, then you are going to lose assets. Mm human but also material assets, you will have to, you, you will also face lo logistic uh, failure. And this was foreseen all, for a long time ago that Russia could start an operation but would have difficulty sustaining it log logistically. Uh, and then your attrition rate is like increasing, 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 increasing. Um, for example, 25 to 30, you're basically losing a third of your elements. So basically what we, we would call a military term using one maneuver element. Yeah. Well, the other two are just there where they are. You don't have your reserves. You cannot move anymore. So 25 to 30, it's like you cannot maneuver, but you can still be engaged in combat. If the attrition rate would go up, then you would not even have a combat capacity left. Gotcha. Okay, very interesting. Now, indeed, speaking of, uh, as you said, mobility there, the Russian advance and the supply trains um, apparently got bogged down, uh, be it weather, be it a lot of people saying also a bit of inexperience that the Russians hadn't, you know, there were a lot of the recruits who are there uh, haven't actually had the experience there. Um, but let's just say over the t past uh, 20 days or so, um, you know, Russia, I've said it before, have relied very heavily on artillery attacks. But if the attrition rate um, keeps on going up uh, and the war becomes drawn out. The, will the Kremlin resort to an all-out war of attrition? Uh, and that indeed brings up the specter of chemical weapons. Already there have been claims of cluster bombs being used, which really, 
you know, target you know, children or civilians because they pick them up and they're aimed. They're, they're made to maim people, not to kill them. Um, and then, of course, there is the accusations of specifically targeting civilians. Um, what exactly, uh, you know, are we are we looking at? I mean, there's also the nuclear facilities such as Chernobyl, who for now has still remained intact. Will this war go nuclear? And we're not talking about international ICBMs, you know, intercontinental ballistic, ballistic missiles, sophisticated dirty bombs. What happens, for example, if a nuclear facility that is close to a NATO border, be it close to Poland or uh, anything around uh, Ukraine, let's just say that there is an ash cloud or that there is a nuclear radiation cloud that starts moving west. Is there any precedent for NATO or a European country to respond to something like that passing into NATO or European territory to to respond to Russian military, militarily? Well, first of all, I think we need to look back in the past uh, mm. again here and look at um, Russian military interventions in Afghanistan mm. back in the 80s, but also in uh, Chechnya, in Syria. And basically, this is the worst case scenario that can also happen in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, um, clearly, u- urban warfare, street by street, really house by house. Um, and I guess when we when we look back at the, really the, the, the images, but also what happened back in the days in Afghanistan, in, in Grozny or in, in Aleppo, for example, well, we can imagine that those will be uh, images or at least stories that we, we also could get from the Ukrainian uh, from the Ukrainian conflict. I think it is it is important to always look look back at the past. Mm. Um, for example, at the Institute for Economics and Peace, we have also looked at uh, spikes in terrorism or spikes in you know terrorism as a tactic used in an insurgency fight. Well, we have seen those spikes after the intervention in Georgia in 2008, after the interventions in uh, in Crimea or taking over Crimea in 2014. So you could also expect these type of terrorist spikes or the use of terrorist tactics in an insurgency in this conflict. And the more violent the conflict is, well, the more impactful those acts of terrorism will, will be also. So you can see this sort of evolution. I think all the rest is, is guessing, and it's a political debate that will take place in, in Brussels, in two headquarters. Indeed. And um, we have heard reports of uh, dumb bombs, as in basically bombs that have just been dropped without any targets, uh, without any uh, you know, specific um, source to be attacked that has already been used. So that means that it's almost like carpet bombing. You're just basically throwing them, throwing whatever ordinance you have on top of a, a population. Um, should we be afraid of the use of um, nuclear weapons? Is that something in the arsenal? Is that something within the, uh, the strategy of um, Russians coming into uh, to Ukraine? Is it something that we should be afraid of? I think we still. I think when we look at nuclear weapons, or even what we will call weapons of mass destruction, this mm. can also be chemical, bacteriological, or radi- radiological weapons. Mm. I think this is the, the use in last resort, and and everybody who would use those type of weapons know what the consequences would be. Yeah. We, we also need to understand that if this would be used within Ukraine, this could also be a threat to Russian troops, yeah. especially if the idea is to really. 
um, occupy Ukraine afterwards, well, you're not going to uh, spoil, I would say, the environment there for your, tr your troops to become, uh, to become then uh, effective poisoned afterwards or poisoned yeah, or yeah. under the influence of your own, the use of your own weapons. I mean, you spoke about the nuclear plans. I think that's also, and that's something we see both in cyberspace and outside of cyberspace, basically in the real world. You're always mm -hmm. going in a military operation. You try to go for the critical infrastructure. You need to, uh, to be in charge of that as soon as possible because this can also facilitate and afterwards your impact on, uh, on, the, uh, on the opposing forces, your impact on the opposing regime, and also uh, basically influencing hearts and minds of the population you, are, you want to, the country you want to occupy. And holding them ransom, holding them to ransom. If you can cyber attack or physically attack a nuclear installation, it means that people will not put a foot forward. Well, well basically what I try to say is that both in the real world, in I would say kinetic military operation, mm -hmm. or in cyber, cyber warfare, you would clearly identify the same type of critical infrastructure you want to be to be uh, in control of in, instead of, I would say, the opposing parties being in control of. So to me, there in cyberspace and in, in real kinetic operations, the objectives that you are going to go for, especially in the first phase of operation, are quite similar also. The approach that you have is just different. Is the, the, the techniques that you use are different, but the goals are the same. Now, speaking of um, goals, uh, well, well, indeed, one of the excuses or definitely one of the, uh, the, the main uh, reasons that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, has invaded Ukraine is indeed uh, the potential joining of NATO by uh, Kiev. Now, um, from what we can hear from the part of Kiev, the reason that there was were advances on joining NATO was because of what happened in Crimea back in 2014. However, I came across um, myself, and it was a colleague of mine here at uh, Radio France International, came across a communique that came out from Georgia on the 1st of February, um, saying that NATO and Georgia will be holding joint operations um, that are scheduled for this month, the month of uh, March. Um, I haven't heard anything to the contrary saying that they won't go ahead, but uh, that will surely go down like a lead balloon with Moscow, seeing that you still have countries such as Georgia, Moldova, which has its own internal conflict in Transnistria, and uh, you know, other aspirants to, uh, to join uh, with the European Union. Do you think that this is the right time for NATO to start doing and scrambling joint operations with uh, Tbilisi? Well, first of all, it's not joint operations, it's joint exercises. Exercises. We, we, we need to be very uh, careful here with, in the words <laughs> the, we use in, words. In, in times of conflict war sure. or special military operations. Uh, uh, uh. I think, I mean, we need to understand that Georgia, even Moldova, are mm. NATO partners mm. and therefore can do joint exercises. Yes. Just like Russia is doing joint exercises with countries in Central Asia, with mm -hmm. China and other partners. Mm -hmm. I think there is nothing. This has been on the planning for years and just being continued to be executed at the moment. I think what we need to look at, again, it's those, this confronta confrontation of two views of the world. Mm -hmm. From a Brussels perspective, both for NATO and the EU, when you look at the, at the East, uh, clearly you had a vacuum there. Yeah. A lot of different countries at the, when the, the wall came down in the early 90s. And all of those countries mm -hmm. just could determine themselves which alliances they would build or which group they would, be, they would like to be part of. When we look at all those countries, they've all requested NATO membership first. And once security was set... Then they requested EU membership after that for economic and social development. All of those countries looked at the West in their self-determination, 
to become more prosperous and more secure. Nobody looked to the East, nobody looked to Moscow mm. if they were not forced to. That's one thing. The other thing, the countries you mentioned, well, that's what's left of the buffer zone between two blocks, East and West in Europe. This buffer zone was much larger before, I would say definitely during the Cold War. This buffer zone has now shrunk to a bare minimum from a Moscow perspective. You know, I explained to you, yeah. security is important, borders territory, the two blocks make sure that there is no threat on the Russian Western border. Well, the bare minimum was Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, and Finland, so to speak. Mm. Well, we have seen what happened in 2008 in uh, Georgia, mm -hmm. frozen conflict. You just take part of the country, you freeze the conflict. Same thing in Moldova afterwards. Ukraine, definitely the same thing. And at the moment, still nothing happened in, in, in Finland. But the technique of those frozen conflicts is aiming at uh, making sure that the last portion of the buffer zone will remain because those countries, because they are engaged in some form of conflict, automatically cannot access neither NATO nor the EU because of the clauses of Article 5 for NATO, sure. 42.7 in the EU, collective defense or mutual assistance. This brings me to a point uh, that has been uh, niggling in my head uh, since the uh, outbreak of this conflict uh, is um, um, looking back at Article 5 uh, that you brought up of NATO. Um, we remember that uh, 11 years ago, uh, Colonel Gaddafi, the Libyan dictator, was overthrown by a popular revolution. He was lynched on the streets. Um, uh, not too far from his uh, tribal uh, home. Um, and NATO then assisted in the overthrow of Gaddafi, the reinstation of maybe, or the, the installation of a, a new government. Um, what allowed NATO to intervene in Libya but not intervene in Ukraine? When we look at uh, the military interventions, and I would call them uh, crisis response operations, or in the terms, non-Article 5 crisis response operations of the past 20, 30 years, except for Kosovo in 1999, mm. they were all based on a UN Security Council resolution that was relating to, and now we get technical here, related to Article 51 of the UN Charter. That is the article that is talking about the potential cases in which you might use uh, violence or even military force, mostly for self-defense or collective self-defense. So when I speak about Article 5 at NATO, Article 42.7 at the, in the Treaty of the EU, well, both refer to Article 51 of the UN Charter. Mm -hmm. So to have legal in military interventions in all the different countries and in which the West as such, or NATO as an, as an alliance, intervened in over the past two, two, three decades, well, clearly this was always, always through Article 51 and through UN Security uh, Council resolution. And why can't um, President Zelensky, for example, go and try and get the United Nations to invoke Article 51 and get NATO then to sneak in its Article 5 to um, help with them pushing back the Russian invasion. Well, basically, tried that. I mean, ah. the, the, the Ukrainian oh. ambassador uh, asked for Security, Security Con uh, Council resolution, condemning the attack, condemning the war. But of course, then Russia used his veto. And then we saw the abstentions of other countries in the Council, in council also. Mm -hmm. And of course, from there, they went on to the General Assembly, got the vote over there. So those tools have been used. But there is one really interesting element that we also maybe need to talk about is the fact that, you know, in a realist approach, those international organizations, they're not really central in the debate. They yeah. are central in the debate for a more liberal approach, you know, when we all work together and you need those fora to discuss and, and come to common, common uh, decisions. 
Uh, well, that's not really necessary for a realist player in international relations. He might use them if, if those international organizations give him more power as a realist player. But it's not really centered in the realist debate. Indeed, it's, it comes across kind of cynical. I mean, um, it, there was a you know, kind of ringing that there was an element of hypocrisy in NATO's inaction, even though we had got uh, the um, US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, say one centimeter, one millimeter of NATO territory. If that is touched, we will retaliate. But um, when, you know, looking from France or from Europe or from a NATO state um, and, you know, with the Libyan dictatorship that was toppled back in 2011, and the appeals to Ukraine for saying we need a no-fly zone. Well, if you put a no-fly zone in, that means if there's a direct NATO intervention against Russia there. But it kind of, se- it kind of seems to me it was almost like uh, you know, giving um, thoughts and prayers to, um, to a, a U.S. high school after submachine guns have been used to massacre 50 children, but nothing has been done to repeal the gun laws. So it, am I, is this just the real politic of things? Well, I think we need to look at two different things. It's basically the collaboration before mm-hmm. the conflict and the support within the conflict. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, before the conflict, I spoke about before, you know, the strategic defense cooperation with the U.S. That's, I mean, uh, Ukraine is uh, a NATO partner, so there have, there's been an engagement there for more than... Uh, I mean, I, myself, I worked at NATO headquarters in the early 2000s. There was already a, a NATO-Ukraine commission going on there. Mm. There were exchanges. So for about 20, 30 years you now, there has been collaboration. Of course, this collaboration intensified in, in, in just in the past, in the recent years. But there's always been an exchange between NATO and, and Ukraine, which is basically also thrown in the side of, of, the, of the Russians, or at least of uh, the Russian regime at, at the moment. And same, the same thing is valid also for the individual member states in a bilateral way supporting Ukraine. So that's yeah. always happened as a partner of the alliance. Mm. Now in the conflict, well, there is still this support both from the United States but also all the other uh, members of, the, of NATO and the EU individually in a bilateral way. Even Belgium, where I come from, delivered lethal and non-lethal and logistic support to, uh, to Ukraine. And, but, of course, you had uh, Poland, which was trying to give its MiG fighter jets, but that was blocked by the United States. That was a step too far by, uh, once it came to aerial uh, dominance. Yeah. So there are, are these... Are these these things aren't obviously written into any articles. These are just are these the, the pragmatic rail politic when you're actually sitting on the ground looking at the war happen. But but I think you know supporting Ukraine when, when Ukraine is asking for support. Well, we also relate there to uh, Article 51. Mm. It's basically comparable to the Assad regime, which is still the recognized regime in Syria, who about uh, what a little bit less than a decade ago requested officially Russian support. You know, in, 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 in his fight, and that's also a case of Article 51, yeah. when a sovereign country is asking another one for support, well, it, this, the, the second country might come and help. So what, when President Zelensky is asking us for help, well, we might give him this help, lethal, non-lethal, and all logistics. And this is, all, this is happening. But NATO as an alliance, this is something completely different, because this is why you take really the two... Uh, antagonist players there and you put them in front of each other. So you need to be very careful there not to escalate too much. Uh, Indeed, looking at escalation, I mean, there's the latest round of talks uh, that are going on between Ukraine and Russia that I believe are being held by video conference uh, um, that are said to have been more positive. Now, how one can interpret that, I do not know. We're not party to these uh, meetings, but um, they seem to have been going a little better than, than the past, which was basically Russia saying, give us what we want or we'll 
bomb you into oblivion. But let's just say there have been um, certain pundits out there, uh, former um, UN advisors, uh, who have just said, look, give the Russians what they want, and that is Ukrainian neutrality. And that means that Ukraine cannot join NATO or remain neutral. But what precedent does that set if Ukraine says we will not join NATO? What does that set for the military alliance itself? Well, I think you need to come back to uh, to the basics there also. Mm. At the end of the day, Ukraine is a sovereign, independent country and can decide on its own future. Mm. That's theory. Okay, we are all... Theoretically, all, yeah, yeah. theoretically that's what's happening. Uh, if we like it or not, Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine are in this friction zone between NATO alliance or the West as such and Russia, the, the Russian Federation on the other side. And Armenia, of course, and Azerbaijan. Yeah, of course. And you can, you can, of course, go on and, and, <laughs> Drag in and, and look at other, other in, international players and yeah. see where the, where the buffer zone is there, where the friction zone is there also. Mm. And I think that's unfortunate for, for those countries, that they are in this friction zone. So, of course, when you approach this with a Western view, well, clearly they can decide wherever they go. And that's what I explained before. All those countries went first for NATO and then EU, first security and then prosperity. Um, but those were the countries that were like on the outskirts of yeah. the buffer zone. Now we get to the heart of the buffer zone. And I would say the approach is completely different from a Moscow perspective there. Now, uh, I've got one or two more questions, I think, that uh, will really square the circle of our conversation here today, Serge. Um, I want to first paraphrase um, an economist, um, a gentleman known as uh, Sergei Guriev, who has underlined that the resilience of authoritarian states resides on three pillars – Lies, fear, and economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. Now, all three of these pillars, it would appear, are being comprehensively eroded by Putin's war in Ukraine. Now, as the fault lines appear or become more exposed, could we expect further down the line any popular uprising within Russia against Putin, at least in the major cities, maybe not in the countryside where the access to uh, information is more difficult, or is the actual deep state, the deep state apparatus in Russia too strong and therefore unlikely? I think I would like to answer this. It's an excellent question. I would like to answer in, in three steps. First of all, you spoke about lies. Mm. I think this can also become a liability. And, I, and one of the reasons why the, the military operations are not really going that well is because they have been prepared, in a, I would say, in an environment of lies. Mm. So those who had to prepare for military operations, or at the FSB, for example, did not receive on their desk the case like, hey, guys, in six months from now, we want to evade Ukraine. Yeah. How do we need to, to, to prepare this? Because that's also a liability of these authoritarian regimes. At, you know, at, at some point, it's only a very small circle of people who are really aware of what's going on, and all the rest is living in lies. Mm. And I think that's also a liability that, that played a role in the potential unsuccessful military operations so far for, for on, on the Russian side. Second part of my answer would go about uh, the person of Vladimir Putin, but also the regime he's representing. I'm not convinced that a lot of people talk about, oh, why can't we like 
push Putin aside or Putin assassination or uh, kind of a, a coup within 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 the system. Well, the system would still be there. Yes, uh, you know, is is very is a, is a keen adept of the Soviet Union. Well, we have seen a change of power there regularly, but the system <laughs> always was, was always there. That's basically, I would say, Russian foreign well, policy or Russian politics. Up until Brezhnev, it was like if it was a president today, it was a chairman yeah, every al second almost, week. Almost, but that's power. basically Russian foreign policy yeah. or Ru Russian politics for the four uh, the, the 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 past four hundred years. Yes. So nothing changed over there. Um, so it's not because you're taking somebody, a man away or the representative away. Of course, it's very well encroached in the system, but the system will, st will still be there. And of course, I think we, we see enough of uh, repression, uh, censorship, uh, disinformation going on in, um, in, in Russia. And of course, this deep state is very, very strong and it will be very difficult, as we have also seen in the past, past years and decades, uh, Nemtsov, Navalny, you can name sure. others, to really have another voice than the voice of the regime. So I guess it will be very difficult for that. But eventually, we also need to ask ourselves the question if a complete defeat in, for the Russians in Ukraine and maybe uh, a complete defeat for Putin as such is, re is really um, a scenario that, that is uh, the one we, sh we would like to have. That's the preferable scenario for that the would antagonists be the, From a Western Russia, perspective, yeah. of course, that's a preferable scenario. But the consequences of such scenario, are we, are we really uh, envisaging what type of consequences that would bring? So... I'm not saying that I would. I'm not saying that I would like the Russians to be to, to, to win the war in Ukraine. Definitely not. That's yeah. not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that if they would not succeed, this will also have consequences. Well, we we also read from recent history that regime change is uh, never necessarily a very easy or bloodless uh, <laughs> application of uh, of diplomacy or of of the new world order. Uh, and indeed, of course, there is the economic situation. Will those sanctions ever actually have an impact there? We shall see. Um, now, uh, just a little um, thing before we go. I've got another one question as well that kind of brings us into a more historical context, especially here in Europe. Harkening back to the Spanish Civil War, almost one could say, um, um, I was at a Ukrainian church or one of the Ukrainian churches here in Paris uh, yesterday. And uh, the young volunteers who were there were collecting combat clothing, medical supplies for the resistance. So we get this very kind of, especially here in Paris, you know, there's a still very strong sense of World War II that is on every corner here of resisting, resisting, resisting. So they didn't talk about a war, they talked about resistance. Now, we have also got, for now, we've seen um, military experts, we've seen doctors, medical staff who come from Norway, the UK, from all over Europe, and I'm sure the world, who said, I cannot just sit by and watch this happen under my nose. So one could say in some way that this is almost like the forma formation of international brigades mm -hmm. to fight for the Ukrainian resistance. Now, could such a... Resistance. Let's just say that there is a meeting at that Ukrainian church every Sunday to gather people in to join the cause, to fight against Moscow's aggression, to liberate Mariupol, uh, that that could bring Russia in and give them an excuse to say, excuse me, this resistance organization is centered in your capital city. We have the authority and the right to bomb this or to take this out strategically. Can that happen? Is that a scenario that could be envisaged, be it in Warsaw, or Bucharest or Paris? I mean, 
what what you need, what we need to understand also is that this idea of foreign fighters mm. is not new. This, it, we have it, Syrians it, it, already yeah, in Ukraine. Yeah, that's one thing. But we had international international forces or, or in, international individuals mm. already participating in the Ukrainian defense of the the two oblasts, mm -hmm. uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, since 2014. They have been active in many many con countries or in many many conflicts of the past two three decades. Myself, for example, when deployed in uh, in Bosnia in the 90s, well, mm. there were different nationalities in, 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 in those forces that we were trying to keep apart or, or even in the terrorist forces that were also present in, in the Bosnian theater in the 90s. So mm -hmm. this is not new. Uh, people from all over the world get attracted by conflict, especially if they see a cause there that they, can, that they can defend. And I think when you look at what's happening in Ukraine now, for those people, it goes much further than just the defense of the territory, mm -hmm. the defense of Ukraine. It's, it's really defense of I would say the world as we knew it, the world order as we knew it, the norms and values of the of the, the Western and free world. That's what they are going to try to uh, to defend over there. Of course, motivated by the reaction of the Ukrainian people. Also, uh, we see movements on on both sides. So also, the Russians are getting this sort this sort of reinforcement. Yeah. And of course, clearly, President Zelensky almost organized these uh, international legions to come to uh, to Ukraine and help them uh, support within the resistance. Uh, so so that's clearly now the argument to say that this would be a reason to basically bomb uh, um, European capitals, European cities. Well, it doesn't need that. We're already providing, as I said, our governments are already providing support to uh, to the Ukrainian defense. From military advisors. From, military, from equipment, lethal yes. no lethal logistics. The, advi the advisors also. And, yes, yeah. Clearly, we are su supporting the effort there. So that's, that's a reason enough. And as I said, the private sector self-sanctioning, That's what they are also based in, in our capital. So there's already... If there was a reason, then there was already reason the, enough. The, you, did, you do not need this resistance uh, starting in our, in our capitals to, to, to make them a target. Personally, I don't think we are a target at the moment, for sure okay. not. And finally, um, Serge, uh, you know, it would appear that this war will not be won militarily. Um, diplomacy will, in some form or another, have to prevail. Um, but at what cost, of course, that remains to be seen. Um, but no matter what the outcome, with Putin still in charge, Russian experts that I have spoken to recently say that what we're about to enter is a new Cold War that will be much worse than the previous one that I grew up in, that you grew up in. Uh, what do you think the next Cold War will be like? What is it? What form will it take? <sighs> My, my personal opinion there is that we did not start a new opposition of, in style, let, let, let's call it like this, with the Ukrainian conflict. This is a movement that has been going on for a much longer time, and it's not only Russia. So we clearly see um, an evolution of, as I said, two different approaches to international relations, uh, two norms and values in, in international relations also, two different I would say approaches how to use your power or to maximize your power and, in, and influence other countries or the regions. Mm. So that's something we clearly uh, clearly emerged. And we also saw that at the Institute for Economics and Peace with the Global Peace Index, for example, where we have seen that in the past decade, conflicts multiplied and definitely were the reason for a decrease of levels of peacefulness worldwide. Where we have seen a change in the past two, three years where it's the investment in military assets. It's really the levels of militarization that are now the motor of the decrease in peacefulness. Mm. So clearly there is opposition, the blocks forming. You know, I mean, look at the vote at the UN General Assembly 
we're back with uh, the good guys, the bad guys, and the non-aligned, <laughs> yeah. which is basically the result of, of the vote at the UNGA. So without wanting this as a consequence of the vote, we basically recreated two blocks, again, the friction zones, and again, the, the non-aligned countries. Uh, so we are again in another setting of international relations. And I think what is really painful for, especially for Europe at the moment, is to still live with this idea of, um, of liberalism, this, you know, now the economic interdependence that was basically um, a guarantee for peace in the, in the past three decades, well, now it's become a liability uh, in, in a non-peaceful peaceful world. So really from a perspective, when you see these evolutions over the past decades in the levels of peacefulness, what is happening, the level of civil unrest going up, you know, those different things, and of course a lot of strategic factors influencing peace security, not to mention the environmental crisis or climate change. Well, we see that all this is now interconnecting and that we basically enter a new world order that is now multipolar, therefore uh, less stable with more competition. And I think this competition is now at the heart of international relations. And that's something that we need to, to adapt to. So for those who think that after COVID, we will just go back to normal life. Well, excuse me, but it's COVID. And it's a lot of, a lot of other crises that basically created a new world to which we need to adapt. And I think that's, those are the difficulties that we are facing at the moment. And indeed, in this highly interconnected, uh, globalised uh, world in which we live, a new Cold War is very hard to put one thumb on, one thumb on. Um, Serge uh, Strubantz, uh, who is an international strategic consultant or security consultant, should I say, with the Brussels-based Institute for Economics and Peace. Thank you very much for being on Paris Perspective today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for watching and listening to Paris Perspective. Uh, I'm David Coffey, and I'll be back in two weeks' time with another edition, which, of course, you can get on rfienglish.com forward slash podcasts and, indeed, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back very soon.